Carlos Aguilar, and this is your call. In December, the New York Times ran a piece by Jody Cantor and Adam Liptak called Behind the Scenes at the Dismantling of Roe v. Wade. They report that Justice Amy Coney Barrett selected to clinch the court's conservative supermajority and deliver the nearly 50-year goal of the religious right opposed taking up the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. When the jurists were debating Mississippi's request to hear it, she first voted in favor, but later switched to a no, according to several court insiders and a written tally. Four male justices, a minority of the court, chose to move ahead anyway, with Justice Brett Kavanaugh providing the final vote. On February 10th, 2022, Justice Samuel Alito's clerk circulated his 98-page draft opinion. After a justice shares an opinion inside the court, other members scrutinize it. Those in the majority can request revisions, sometimes as the price of their votes, sweating sentences, or even words. But this time, despite the document's length, again, it was 98 pages, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote back just 10 minutes later to say that he would sign on to the opinion and had no changes. This is according to two people who reviewed the messages. The next morning, Justice Clarence Thomas added his name, then Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and days later, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. None requested a single alteration. The responses, according to the New York Times, looked like a display of conservative force and discipline. Well, that discipline has led to abortion bans in 15 Republican-controlled states and extreme restrictions in another seven. So how is this playing out across the country? The Guttmacher Institute estimates that nearly 5% of reproductive age women in the U.S. have an unintended pregnancy every year. That is significantly higher than the rates in many other affluent countries. In fact, we are going to do a show about sex education soon. Unintended pregnancy rates are highest among low-income women, women ages 18 to 24, and women of color. In 2021, the year before the bans, there were more than 50,000 abortions performed in Texas. Last year, there were just 40, according to CBS. The penalties Texas doctors face for performing an abortion are very high. Fines of at least $100,000 and up to 99 years in prison. Several women have sued the state of Texas for putting their lives in danger by refusing to grant them the right to an abortion. We will talk about those cases and others on today's Your Call. We'll also discuss the increasing threat of legal action against people who have abortions, the doctors who provide them, and even people who miscarry. And as new cases before the Supreme Court risk eroding abortion access even further, what protections are left for reproductive freedom? How are activists responding? Today, we're joined by Tessa Stewart, senior writer at Rolling Stone, where she covers politics and national affairs. A few of her recent pieces focus on the upcoming Supreme Supreme Court decision that will determine whether states can force doctors to turn away patients suffering serious life-threatening medical complications or if doctors will be allowed to provide standard medical care, which is abortions. Tessa Stewart has also written about a Florida bill that would allow wrongful death lawsuits over abortions and Project 2025. That is the Heritage Foundation's nearly 1,000-page transition guide for the next Republican president. Project 2025 includes plans to attack access to contraception, use the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to increase abortion surveillance and data collection and so much more hi tessa thank you so much for your important reporting and thank you for joining hi rose us. thank you for having me great to have you we're also joined by rachel reboucher dean and professor of law at temple university faculty fellow at the university's center for public health law research and co-author of the legal article the new abortion battleground hi professor reboucher thank you so much for joining us again Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'd love to start off with you, Professor Reboucher. I just wonder what your thoughts are about this New York Times piece that was so extensive. It, it is fascinating to me that people actually told the reporters what went on behind the scenes. It seems to me that this is pretty rare. And I just wonder, what are your thoughts about what they report that usually 
when jurists receive, when the justices receive an opinion that is so long, like 98 pages, they scrutinize it, they request revisions, they sweat sentences. And yet in the case of Justice Neil Gorsuch, he wrote back in just 10 minutes to say he would sign on. And then the other signed on the next day. I thought the article was extraordinary reporting because <laughs> I agree the fact that they were able to unearth these details about what was happening behind the scenes. You know, as, as anyone who writes anything, you go through countless revisions of your work um, from the smallest piece to the 9,800 page piece. And the fact that there were not revisions sent um, makes one wonder what were the conversations happening that were not over email that were not written that were behind the scenes that you know the majority of court would have or you know the Gorsuch for instance Justice Gorsuch would have nothing to say about any any part of the opinion is really striking um, and it's also striking that this was an opinion that has attracted a lot of controversy at the level of not just what happened next and of practice, but of the arguments that were made around history and tradition and the state of the law, um, you know, what had happened for abortion law in this country, what was going to happen next. And that opinion was leaked, and it did not change one bit other than to add sentences deriding Chief Justice Roberts <laughs> and his concurrence. The idea that you could have the backlash that we saw from the leaked draft and it not change one bit is in keeping with this idea that this opinion had legs before, you know, it, it got circulated. I, but I don't know. That's just conjecture. Richard Ray, a University of Virginia law professor and former Kavanaugh clerk on a federal appellate court, told the New York Times that the court barreled over each of its normal procedural guardrails and the court compromised its own deliberative process. So what precedent do you think this sets? You know, it that's that's I think what's troubling is because this seems so like such an outlier in how the court has worked in the past, it's hard to know what happens next in the next big case. Um, this clearly was a case that segment of the court felt very passionate about, had argued for a long time that Roe was precedent that should be overturned, even though that's not what they said in their confirmation hearings. And you know that is this a is this a singular issue for some of those justices that, that begged an exception for normal practices and procedures? I'm not sure, um, but it does it does suggest that there is a set of questions we need to be asking about transparency mm-hmm. and having faith in the type of deliberations that we have had come to expect from the Supreme Court. I think that's what's troubling about thinking about a court that insulates itself from any public view about what its deliberations entail. Tessa, what are your thoughts about what we now know happened behind the scenes? One of the things that I was really struck by um, reading that article, which I agree was was fantastic reporting, um, was about this sense of urgency uh, among the justices that they needed to hear this case, um, and and you you remarked on Amy Coney Barrett um, reportedly uh, voting to hear the case and then changing her vote, um, and and I that that was something that that really stood up out to me um, about why there was after fifty years such such urgency to hear this case now, um, and it really just seems like it, it speaks to this this larger project and how long that how long this has been a priority of the religious right. Um, but but that was the thing that that really struck out to me. Tessa, we talked about this on yesterday's show. Uh, we just talked about, you know, what is happening across the country, these bans now in 15 Republican controlled states, extreme restrictions in another seven and it feels like things have moved really quickly. I mean, I remember like three elections or three or four elections ago, there's no way a Republican running for president would say that they oppose abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden that became normal for the Republican Party. And now what we're seeing in Texas is Republicans 
are fighting women who actually want their children. And basically, the latest case, and we'll get into that, says there are no exceptions, period. So, Tessa, how far do you think, I mean, we're seeing this play out, but how far do you think Republicans are willing to go? It's really, it's really fascinating, Rose, to see um, how the the Overton window has shifted. Um, and I'm seeing it in places where you're, uh, like in New Hampshire, um, where they have they introduced this bill um, that would uh, ban abortion starting at 15 days gestation, which in many cases is before a person is even pregnant, um, because gestation is counted from the last menstru- menstrual cycle. Um, so, you know, at any time in, the, in those 28 days, you know, you could become pregnant. So 15 days gestation, you might not even have had, um, you know, intercourse yet. Um, so I, 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 what I'm struck by is uh, the way that the focus has shifted to um, the rights of the fetus in uh, no matter what what situation um the the uh pregnant person is um is in and and i i think we're seeing that with the mtala cases where uh the this is the um uh the emergency medical uh uh um a supreme court case that that governs uh emergency medical treatment. And this is if, if a pregnant woman comes to an emergency room and she's, um, you know, bleeding in, in, in some of the cases that, that were brought up in, in, um, in the, the depositions, you know, uh, if someone is bleeding profusely, if they are, um, having preeclampsia, if they are experiencing any number of medical, uh, conditions that, that could lead to death, um, there are states like Idaho and Texas that are saying, you know, your doctors are not allowed to provide what would normally be standard medical care and uh, to protect the the pregnant woman. They have to uh, put the the uh, fetus's rights uh, basically on on the same level. You wrote about this law for Rolling Stone called the Supreme Court will decide if states can can force hospitals to let women die. You report that. It's called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, or EMTALA. It's more than three-decade-old federal law that says hospitals that accept Medicare, most hospitals in this country, cannot turn away anyone with an emergency medical condition. They are required to provide stabilizing treatment to prevent that person from suffering serious medical complications. How did this case make its way to the Supreme Court? Um, this made its way to the Supreme Court. Initially, um, it was a response that the Biden administration um, took in response to the Dobbs decision. Um, the Biden administration issued this guidance um, that clarified that MTALA, which is this, as you said, more than three decade old federal law that says, you know, you can't turn away someone. Uh, if you receive federal funds as a hospital, you cannot turn away someone um, who is in who needs emergency medical treatment without stabilizing them. Um, and what the Biden administration did after the Dobbs decision was they clarified, they issued uh, uh, guidance that said, you know, this, uh, this applies to abortions. And in states that have bans on abortion, um, even total bans on abortion, doctors and in hospitals that receive federal funding, which is most, most hospitals, um, they can't turn away someone who is having a life-threatening pregnancy complication. They have to um, provide them with the, with the treatment that they would normally provide them, um, whether or not the state that whether or not the state um, outlaws abortion. Um, and uh, Idaho, uh, and so Idaho's ban is a is a near total ban on abortion. And after they after the federal government issued that uh, guidance, they sued the state of Idaho and said uh, that their ban was <clears throat> conflicted uh, with this with this federal law. Um, and uh, and Idaho has appealed the decision um, and a lower court temporarily put Idaho's ban as it relates to emergency abortions. Um, these are abortions that would only be provided in a case where a woman will likely die um, if she doesn't receive medical treatment, uh, they said they put that the the lower court put um, 
put the ban on hold. Uh, but the Supreme Court reinstated it on January 5th um, and said, you know, Idaho is allowed to restrict abortion until we hear this case uh, in April. And uh, there's a separate case that's working its way through the system in Texas. But essentially, Idaho and Texas are are making the same argument, which is that the federal government, the Supreme Court has said that states get to regulate abortion and the federal government is trying to uh, is trying to insist that it can regulate abortion in this case. And and we feel like we being Idaho and Texas, we feel like, you know, this is this is improper. And so the Supreme Court's going to decide whether whether, um, you know, doctors are allowed to follow federal guidance on this or whether they have to defer to the state law. In a statement, Nancy Northrup or Northup, president of the Center for Reproductive Rights, called the Supreme Court's intervention in the case deeply troubling. She said Mtala is currently the only federal protection for patients who need emergency abortions. If the Supreme Court eviscerates that, there is no doubt that people will die. And Tessa, as you write in your piece, at least one woman may have died already. Uh, The New Yorker reported on what may be the first death tied to failure to provide such emergency medical treatment. Yennefer Alvarez Estrada Glick, who expired outside an emergency room in Luling, Texas in the summer of 2022. Glick had been hospitalized multiple times for severe pregnancy complications, including hypertension and pulmonary edema that put her in intensive care. Medical records indicate Glick was never offered an abortion. Treatment for experts told the New Yorker that if offered and accepted would probably have saved her life. I I have to say before I read your piece, I had not heard of Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick. I mean, you write about the New Yorker reporting on this. Is this getting a lot of media attention? It's really not getting enough media attention. And and there are caveats, of course. There's at no point in the New Yorker piece does anyone in uh in uh Miss Glick's fam Mrs. Glick's family say that, you know, she wanted an abortion and she tried to get an abortion and could not get one. Um what they have instead are these medical experts who looked at her medical file and said, you know, at one point she was in the intensive care unit in a hospital in Austin and she was uh, she was dismissed from the hospital early, uh, much earlier than they think that she should have been. And she was not advised at that point that she had these pre-existing medical conditions that were being dramatically exacerbated by her pregnancy and that reasonably, you know, were endangering her health and could kill her. And at that point, um, you know, these people that that the New Yorker consulted said, you need like you a, a reasonable medical professional would have said it at this point you know you should consider terminating the pregnancy um to preserve your own health and life um but she was never given that uh that medical advice it it appears from any of her medical records um and from interviews that that this reporter did with her family um and the the very disturbing question that this uh, article raises is whether she was not given medical advice because of the laws in Texas and because of fears that if a doctor says that to her, they can then be, um, uh, you know, a, a civil suit could be potentially brought against them for aiding and abetting an abortion. And and that's uh, separate than the than the criminal penalties under Texas law. Um, those are civil penalties that are that exist under uh, a separate law called SB8 that that um, allows for case civil cases to be brought against medical providers. Uh, Professor Reboucher, what do you think these cases tell us about how far Republicans are willing to go on abortion? You know, I think as you began the program, the needles really moved. Um, the idea that Republicans would stand firm in the face of people dying and having severe health complications, losing their their fertility, uh, losing the ability to have children in the future because of the consequences of the the conditions that are life threatening that are not being treated or not being treated in a timely way that we have not seen that before, but it, it was always lurking there. 
that's what personhood is. The idea that um, there is a, a right to life on behalf of the fetus, when you take that to its its it's logical extreme that means that really there's a there's a silent cohort of advocates and uh legal thinkers that believe that there really should be almost no if none no exceptions for um for abortion in this country and that's a, I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the tip of that iceberg, and there's a lot underneath the water. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think what we can expect to see are more of these types of challenges and more of these types of conflicts. Because at their at their base, the problem with laws like Texas and Idaho, Texas, which has very narrow exceptions for abortion, uh, medical emergency that's defined in a very narrow way, and life, not health, not severe health, um, threats to health, uh, just these narrow circumstances. That as, as Tessa said, you know, what we've seen in the Imtala litigation and the other litigation around abortion bans like the one in Texas is that people don't know how to apply them. And they don't know how to apply them because these laws are not very well written and they're not clear and they're not consistent and they and they have pr- produced confusion. And so I guess my point is to workability. One of the things that we should also expect to see is continued confusion about how laws apply and how exceptions apply. And the kind of litigation coming out of Texas and Idaho is really disturbing because you have a state essentially like Texas throwing up its hands and saying, well, it's not our fault. It's not the law's fault if people are dying. Physicians are making decisions based on reasonable judgment, and the federal government can't force us to deliver any type of care um, if it's against what the physician believes is uh, appropriate care. But the missing context is that these laws are vague. They do not have clear definitions. There is no guidance from a medical board. There's not precedent of what physicians should do in these situations because this is, you know, the our, our post-Roe moment where physicians weren't making these kinds of decisions while Roe and Casey were on the books. So I think we're going to see a lot more, sadly, of these types of conflicts and these types of questions um, come come to the fore. Professor Riboucher, given that Mtala has been in place for three decades, The FDA approved the use of mifepristone over 20 years ago. The Supreme Court is now going to hear that case. Is there anything that Republicans cannot go after at this point? That's that's an interesting question. I mean, if you had asked me five years ago, is it a live legal question that the FDA's approval of a drug two decades ago, almost a quarter of a century ago, could be overturned by one federal court, I would not have believed that that could be the case. But indeed, that's what Judge Kaczmarek and Amarillo did. And so it does suggest that, um, that you know, there is, Roe didn't answer, uh, didn't ask an answer, the overturning of Roe didn't ask an answer the question for those who do not support abortion in this country. Um, that was not the end game. The end game is, of course, to end all abortion across the country. And so as long as that is the goal of the anti-abortion movement, um, Dobbs didn't settle that. It's up for some states. Um, but I think until that, until that goal is realized, I think we're seeing all manner of strategies to try to curb abortion in states that already ban it and limit abortion in the states that permit it. We're going to take a quick break. Rachel Riboucher is Dean and Professor of Law at Temple University, Faculty Fellow at the University's Center for Public Health Law Research, and co-author of the legal article, The New Abortion Battleground. We're also joined today by Tessa Stewart, a senior writer at Rolling Stone who extensively covers abortion. Abortion is now banned in 15 Republican-controlled states. There are extreme restrictions in another seven. And now we are seeing lawsuits filed at the state level. The Supreme Court is also going to take up very important cases in the coming months. This is your call. We'll be back after this. 
If you have a question or a comment you want to say on the air, our toll-free telephone number is 866-798-8255, and you can email us. The address is yourcall at kalw.org. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. On January 22nd, this Monday, is the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe 18 months ago, 15 Republican-controlled states have banned abortion. There are extreme restrictions in another seven. If you have any questions or comments about this, uh, if you would like to talk about how you think we got to this place, where we are going, if you've got a personal story to share, media coverage of these issues, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. What are your thoughts on the lawsuits that are being filed by women? A lot of women who wanted their children are filing lawsuits in states like Texas, saying that the bans are putting their lives at risk. You can also email your call at KALW.org. Today, we're joined by Tessa Stewart, a senior writer at Rolling Stone, where she extensively covers these issues. Rachel Riboucher is dean and professor of law at Temple University, faculty fellow at the University's Center for Public Health Law Research, and co-author of the legal article, The New Abortion Battleground. I want to play a clip from uh, Jessica Valenti. Jessica Valenti writes the Abortion Everyday Newsletter. She sends out an email every weekday tracking anything and everything happening with abortion. And this morning, she was on Capitol Hill briefing Senate Democrats about what is happening to abortion rights across the country. Right now, there is a quiet but well-funded campaign led by the most powerful anti-abortion groups in the country that is focused entirely on pressuring and forcing women to carry doomed pregnancies to term. They're not only trying to do away with exceptions for non-viable pregnancies, they're trying to eradicate prenatal testing altogether. It's a lot easier to force women to carry a dying fetus to term if they never get diagnosed to begin with. When I tell people about this, the question I get asked most often is why? Why would anyone want to deliberately create a world where women are forced to be walking coffins? It is inexplicable until you understand that this has nothing to do with families or babies, but enforcing a worldview that says it's women's job to be pregnant and to stay pregnant, no matter what the cost or consequence. But because Republicans don't have the bravery to admit that truth, and because they're afraid of voters who are more pro-choice than ever, they lie. That is Jessica Valenti briefing Senate Democrats on the Hill this morning about what is happening to abortion rights across the country. I think she made several good points there, Professor Riboucher. If you look at the data and the polling, it's 70 to 75 percent of the country supports Roe. I think that needs to be repeated given where we are right now. But what are your thoughts about what she said about what's actually happening here? She always gets asked, why would they do this? Why would they go this far? So I think that there is a long trajectory here. I think the overturning of Roe it was shocking, um, shocking for many, but it is decades of strategy in the making and it's incremental. And so I think now we're seeing the culmination of those strategies bubble up in these, um, in this litigation, in the referenda and the other policies that are shaping the country. And the fact that 15 states now ban almost all abortion, I think speaks to both what Jessica had to say about the vision of women, people can become pregnant as natural mothers. I also think that it is part and parcel of a campaign that is wedded to the idea of fetal personhood that, um, you know, the, the right after Roe, the energy, the focus was on passing a constitutional amendment to protect the unborn um, at the moment of con uh, conception, and that failed year after year. I think then advocates turn their attention to chipping away at Roe and eventually overturning it. But it's never been that far off any. I think advocates radar screen who doesn't support abortion or is actively anti-abortion, I should say, um, to confer rights on, on a fetus. And that I think is where we're seeing a lot of energy and activity 
And through that lens, looking at policies that seek to deprive people who are pregnant of any exception for their abortions, that shift the focus from providers to the people who are pregnant, that seek to ban drugs like mifepristone, not just in 15 states, but across the country, I think that's also a motivating factor. Tessa, what are your thoughts based on all the interviews you've done? Yeah, I I, I agree with Rachel. Um, and I think that there's also um, kind of echoing something that, that Jessica said. Um, I think there's an element of control. I think I've, I've written about um, cases in several states um, that deal with this question of fetal personhood that, that Rachel was talking about. Um, and specifically in those instances, um, these are uh, partners of women who have become pregnant and decide to terminate their abortions, uh, suing the medical provider, uh, saying, you know, this was my child and I, I'm suing you for wrongful death. And I think in that case, it's really a question of control. These people are trying to control their ex-partners and, and say, you know, I'm, I have, uh, I'm allowed to exert my force over, over your body and force you to, to maintain, to keep this, this pregnancy, even if you have decided that you no longer want it and you no longer want to be in this relationship. Um, one of the stories that I wrote recently was about a law in Florida that would, uh, or a, a proposal in Florida in this new legislative session that would, um, you know, uh, include um, unborn children in in the wrongful death statute there. So it would make it easier for um, people to do what they have done in in states like Alabama and Arizona, where um, where they have sued medical providers over um, you know wanted abortions. What what sort of response is this receiving in Florida? As you report, uh, this is being pushed by Republican. Lawmakers, it would revise the state's wrongful death law, allowing individuals to sue and recover monetary damages over the loss of a quote unborn child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I haven't seen much attention given to this proposal at all. I wrote about it. Um, this this bill was pre-filed by two Republicans who sponsored the six-week ban in Florida uh, last year. And um, what is kind of interesting about this law in particular is that it was originally floated uh, by a Democrat as part of um, as part of a, a, a effort to stop um, a tort reform bill that was going through the Florida legislature last year. Um, and so a, a Democrat floated this amendment um, trying to stop that bill from going through, thinking that um, if Republicans voted, if, if like that Republicans would be, would, it, it's quite, it's actually quite complicated. I won't explain the whole thing, but, um, but that, that's all to say it, it, it isn't getting very much attention and, and it really should be because we've seen this used in other states, um, to go after medical providers, um, for providing care to, to women who, who seek it out. Well, especially because Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is running for president and is doing interviews all over the place. I mean, to your knowledge, has anyone asked him about this? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. See, I haven't seen any any coverage of it uh, uh, other than the coverage we've done. I, I have to say, I, this is really frustrating. I mean, we've got these politicians who are running for office. Uh, the people working on their staff are constantly doing interviews. And yet I'm not hearing much about abortion at all. And all of the media coverage around the Iowa caucus. Tessa, are you? Um, I, I mean, I, 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 what's what's interesting about the coverage of the GOP primary is that it really feels like there's not enough attention on the person that is up by 30 points. And all of the, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of focus on Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and their abortion positions, um, but they're they're down by 30 points. And so what we should be talking about are Donald Trump's positions on abortion. And I think I wrote about uh, Project 2025, which is a project of the Heritage Foundation that outlines in excruciating detail this kind of chilling vision of what the next Republican president should do. And I think that it's important to pay attention to this report, which is, you know, almost 900 pages long um, and includes 
hundreds of references to abortion and and ways that they would try to attack abortion um, if if uh, if Republicans gain the presidency again. Um, what what the reason that we should pay attention to it is because when Donald Trump was in office, his first year in office, he um, implemented more than he implemented more than half of of um, these recommendations in his first year in office. He really used this the Heritage Foundation's mandate for leadership, which is what Project 2025 is, um, as a blueprint for his administration. And and I think if he is elected again and does that again, there are some really, really, really serious repercussions for uh, for people that can become pregnant in this country. I, I'm so glad you wrote about Project 2025. I, I wish this was getting more attention. I hope it will in the coming months. Uh, but let's go over a few of the things you write about, because, as you say, an almost 900 page document spearheaded by the Heritage Foundation, hundreds of right wing groups have been involved in this, have signed off on this. It is out there for everyone to read. You write that Project 2025 contains proposals to attack contraception access, use the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to increase, quote, abortion surveillance and data collection and rescind a Department of Defense policy to prohibit abortion travel funding and punish states that require health insurance plans to cover abortion. I mean, we could spend so much time on each of these, but tell us what really stood out for you the most. Um, what, what stood out for me uh, reading this is that each chapter is written by a different uh, a, a different person. And many of the people that are involved that are writing these chapters are people that came directly from the Trump administration. Um, the chapter that uh, focuses most intensely on uh, abortion is the, the department, uh, the, the chapter about what should be done uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services if Republicans regain uh, control of the White House. And that chapter was written by Roger Severino, who uh, was a very high-ranking uh, official in the Department of Health and Human Services when uh, Donald Trump was president. Uh, and and in the, the DOJ section, um, which talks about the Comstock Act, which is a, uh, you know, century-old law that is still on the books that hasn't been enforced, but that uh, many advocates worry and uh, anti-abortion activists say openly that this could be used as a de facto national abortion ban, that you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to, as Nikki Haley has said, you know, we would need control, we would need two thirds of the Senate to pass a national abortion ban. She dismisses questions about a national abortion ban by saying, you know, Republicans won't have two thirds of the Senate. So I don't, we don't even have to talk about this. This, this is never possible. Uh, but what a lot of anti-abortion activists say, and a lot of lawyers who are working in this space say is that the Comstock Act the Comstock Act could be enforced by the DOJ because it is, is an existing law as a national abortion ban it can and basically what it says is that any implement that can be used to prevent uh conception so some people think this also applies to birth control uh cannot be sent through the mail and uh, you know the broadest interpretation there is um is that even, you know, any any implement that would be used in an abortion. So if it's a surgical abortion, it could be even surgical gloves. It could be, uh, you know, any number of things um, would not be able to be sent through the mail. Um, obviously, it would also apply to to the abortion pill, to mifepristone. Um, so so it, it's it's really uh, it's really in depth. Uh, the 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 it's really granular detail that they're looking at about how are the, all of the different ways that we could, um, you know, restrict abortion. And it has to do with foreign, it, 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 it considers foreign policy, you know, what is the state department doing to, um, you know, support reproductive health in, in different countries? What is USAID doing? Um, uh, and, and how can we, you know, translate our worldview, um, across all of these different government agencies. Project 2025 also says if a Republican wins in November, the plan would be to end Medicaid funding of Planned Parenthood health services, remove abortion from health care plans, and transform the Department of Health and Human Services into the Department of Life by explicitly rejecting the notion that abortion is health care. Uh, Pro Professor Riboucher, what are your thoughts on this? What do you make of this? And uh, again, this deserves so much more attention in the media. 
I think it absolutely does. You know, the, the thinking about the administration using the Department of Justice and Health and Human Services as enforcement arms for a radical anti-abortion agenda is really chilling because of the ripple effects it has for so many people and the way that how abortion is defined by many of these groups, as Tessa said, creeps into um, contraceptive use, into other areas of life. Um, the Comstock Act that Tessa mentioned is is really pernicious, and it's already in play. The Supreme Court can't answer questions about that act as as soon as this spring, before a president is elected. Um, but there is this idea that there are these laws that are on the books and laws that have not been enforced for over a hundred years um, that the that can spring into life with a Republican administration that's willing to enforce them, and particularly with the Trump with the Trump administration. And there's something just to pause to worth noting about something like the Comstock Act. This is an 1873 act that hasn't been repealed, but hasn't been enforced since the 1930s, um, was dead law under Roe when abortion was constitutional as a pre-viability right. Um, lots of reasons to think that it shouldn't be enforced because of how it's been interpreted well before Roe. But it is an 1873 law passed by Anthony Comstock. And just to circle back to what Tessa said and Jessica's quote, um, that was about that was about prohibiting any kind of obscene or lewd behavior and material. So it targeted pornography. It targeted anything connected to sex under a kind of Victorian set of beliefs around morality. It targeted contraception. It targeted abortion. And as anything, any pill, any instrument, any device, anything. Um, And it hasn't been enforced because it's a relic of an era that we're we don't enforce lots of laws uh, in that era. We don't enforce laws that remain on the books that criminalize and punish with jail time adultery or fortification outside of marriage. But the fact that this law has remained on the books, though not enforced and narrowly interpreted, has given fodder to this idea that there is a legal hook to do what Project 25 outlines. And I think we have to remember, you know, we should be asking our legislators, you know, do you stand behind a law uh, at a time in which women couldn't vote, in which women were property of their husbands, uh, that their their legal personalities dissolved into that of a spouse, uh, where, you know, an artifact of an 18, 1870s era that doesn't track anything that we, you know, it, what m- the majority, vast majority of people understand about contemporary ethics, moralities, personal autonomy, privacy. Those are the kind of questions that, to your point uh, about what are we asking of politicians, why are we asking them to defend, you know, beliefs that, um the Comstock example is 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 so clear. Enforcing, uh, you know, by f- federal prison time and fines, uh, beliefs from uh, an era of 150 years ago. Uh, I think the same could be said for thinking about using federal agencies as an arm of the abortion movement. How far does that power extend? What, what are they going to use to enforce these policies? These are significant and consequential questions. I also just want to circle back to Florida since we were talking about DeSantis. And given that this hasn't gotten that much attention uh, on the campaign trail, abortion is legal for up to 15 weeks in Florida, though Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill last year that would ban the practice at six weeks gestation. The law is on hold while the Florida Supreme Court considers a challenge to the 15-week ban. Uh, We don't have that much time left, but I do want to uh, spend some time on the Kate Cox story because uh, this just says a lot about how far Republicans are willing to go and then what sort of precedent does this set. So I'm getting all of this information from CBS because she did bravely 
tell her story to CBS. Kate and Justin Cox are lifelong Texans. They were ready. They were already parents to a young girl and boy when they found out last August that Kate was pregnant again. A series of tests revealed that the baby they were expecting, a girl, had trisomy 18. This is a genetic condition that causes severe developmental problems. Here is Kate Cox speaking on CBS. We asked how long we could have with our baby, they thought, um, best case scenario. And um, she said she thought maybe a week. A week was the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if she survived the pregnancy and the birth, that might be a week. And, And what that would mean as far as, I didn't want to watch her suffer. It would be very hard. She would have had to be placed directly on to hospice. There was no treatment that could be done. Did you think your health, your life, would be threatened if you went through with the birth? Yes. We know a lot of the trisomy 18 babies don't survive birth, so I could lose her at any point in the pregnancy. There's risk of infection, risk of uterine rupture, And we want more children as well. So what does that mean for future pregnancies? The Coxes wanted to get an abortion, but that is illegal in Texas. So they contacted the Center for Reproductive Rights and attorney Molly Duane. The district court granted their restraining order, but the Texas attorney general sent a letter to doctors and hospitals warning they still would be prosecuted if they helped Kate get an abortion. He filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court. So they decided they had to go out of state. They had the abortion in New Mexico. And on December 11th, while they were away, the Texas Supreme Court overturned the lower court's ruling. Here is Molly Duane telling CBS what the decision says. Essentially, Kate wasn't sick enough. And I think what that makes clear to me, and the fact that the attorney general fought it as hard as he did, is that the exception in Texas doesn't exist at all. What did you think when you heard their ruling? It was crushing. Um, I was shocked that the state of Texas wanted me to continue a pregnancy where I would have to wait until the baby dies in my belly or dies at birth or lives for days and put my own health at risk and a future pregnancy at risk. Professor Ribouche, I know we have to let you go. What precedent do you think this sets? I think it it, it isn't. Um, it's courts in Texas just ceding power to the legislature in the face of what is tragic human consequences. The fact that the state of Texas um, would deny an abortion in this situation is a very, you know, curbed reading of the exception of the law. It's a very formalist reading of that exception. Um, and it, it, it isn't a good signal of courts being in the state, at least, or at least the Supreme Court, uh, involving itself and the application of law that tries to relieve human suffering. Um, it is that that decision of the Supreme Court of Texas is is narrow. It it takes the exception at its face value of what a medical emergency is, and it doesn't bode well for trying to have courts read into these laws that are vague. And as I said, not well-defined, meaning that helps people on the ground who were suffering like Kate Cox. Uh, It's a tragic situation. Rachel Reboucher is Dean and Professor of Law at Temple University and author of the legal article, The New Abortion Battleground. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tessa Stewart is a senior writer at Rolling Stone. You can find all of the pieces we talked about at yourcallradio.org. Tessa, thank you so much for your important reporting, and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Rose. Thank you. We are going to end today's show with Jessica Valenti, who was on Capitol Hill this morning, briefing Senate Democrats about what is happening to abortion rights across the country. Abortion is health care but it is also freedom. That's why every abortion denied is a tragedy, and increasingly Americans understand that. They don't want the government involved in their decisions about pregnancy at any point. The first, con- uh, the first time I came to D.C. Uh, was in 1992. I was 13 years old, 
And my mother brought me here for the pro-choice march for women's lives. Maybe some of you were, were there. Um, I remember men uh, screaming at us from the sidelines. And I remember how confused I was over why they hated us so much. Today, my 13-year-old daughter is in the room. And it's her first time in Washington. And yet somehow she's here with less rights than I had 32 years ago. And I think that we should be ashamed of that. My deepest hope is that she doesn't need to follow in the steps of her mother and grandmother and come here decades from now to defend her daughter's humanity. That is Jessica Valenti speaking on Capitol Hill this morning. I also wanted to read an email that we received from a listener. It's it's a bit long, but I think it definitely should be read in its entirety. Our, the listener writes, I've been a traveling nurse in labor and delivery for many years. I will no longer work in states where abortion is illegal. Despite what politicians say about exceptions for the life of the mother, we've been put in situations where we have felt like we almost have to wait until a patient is dying before we can try to save her life. Sadly, this is not always possible. One example, a patient who was 17 weeks pregnant came in with cramping. Her amniotic sac was found to be protruding through a three centimeter opening in her cervix. Soon the fetus's leg fell through the cervix and broke the amniotic membranes, releasing the fluid and thus creating a risk for a possibly fatal infection in the mother. The correct treatment at that moment would have been to administer mesoprostol, one of the abortion drugs, to pass the fetus before this happened. But since the fetus had a heartbeat, there was confusion about what the legal issue was at that moment. As the mother was at that time not yet septic, therefore we would not technically be saving her life by aborting the fetus. To wait until she was would have been criminal, as up to 49% of cases of sepsis are fatal. Politics have no place in the delivery room. These laws are creating dangerous conditions for patients, doctors, nurses, and everyone involved in reproductive health. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And we will continue following this issue, of course, in the weeks and months to come. Thanks to Savannah Harriman-Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call. 